everybody. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome you all to this Forum for European Philosophy event at the LSE this evening. My name is Danielle Sands. I'm a fellow at the Forum for European Philosophy, and I'm going to be chairing uh, this evening's event. So we have three speakers this evening, um, and the format of the event will be each speaker will respond to this, this issue of the good life, what constitutes the, the good life. So they'll speak briefly individually, and then hopefully that will open into a discussion between them. And then we'll take some questions at the end. Um, so I'd like to introduce this evening's speakers. Um, so at the end is Dr. Edward Skidelsky. He's lecturer in philosophy at the University of Exeter. Um, Dr. Amber Carpenter, she's associate professor of philosophy at Yale and US University. Um, and she's senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of York. And Professor Josh Cohen. Josh is professor of modern literary theory at Goldsmiths and he's also a practicing psychoanalyst. I think Amber is going to speak first. Thank you, Linda. Um, good. <coughs> so, um, first, my thanks to Danielle for the invitation and for putting this panel together and the occasion. Um, I want to make sure this is in the right angle, that I'm not shouting at anybody. Is it either too loud or too quiet? in the back, in the front. Good. Okay. So, if you were coming of an evening, and especially a lovely May evening like this, to hear people talk, and indeed to talk yourselves about the good life, then you don't need to be told that it doesn't consist in fast cars and champagne. Uh, nor do you need to be reminded that the good life is not a life of endless power to indulge an endless stream of whims. The fact that some people go after money or power as if the things they provided made a life good, and the more of it, the better the life, this may be a curious fact in need of explaining, but it is hardly a tempting thought to share. And yet, why is it not tempting? Plato devoted one of his most complex, um, one might even say obscure, dialogues to articulating that perspective from which the life of accumulating pleasure or power does not appear remotely tempting, no matter how many people vote with their feet by pursuing it. I will, you'll thank me for this later, I will not attempt to recapitulate the contortions of the Philebus here. The moral of it might be put like this. We are meaning-craving and meaning-making creatures. All of our activities are saturated by our attempts to make sense of the world and of our experience. Pleasures and power, however apparently attractive, are only part of the good life to the extent that they are meaningful and play a role in one's life being meaningful. Once one has enough to eat, shelter from the elements, perhaps very basic security, the next most pressing human need is for meaning. So, for instance, what truly enrages people about suffering, says Nietzsche, is not the suffering itself, but the meaninglessness of suffering. And we will come back to this thought about the meaninglessness of suffering at the end. But it brings me to my first bold claim of the evening, which is that the good life, in the only sense worth speaking of, is the meaningful life. Okay, that's bold. Um, and it's all very well, but it actually leads us, um, well, 
to an invidious choice. Either meaningfulness is an ungrounded, disparate phenomenon, each of us drawing it equally legitimately from whatever sources work for them, chacun a son coup, in um, meaningfulness as in pleasures and desires, or else we have to say something substantial about meaningfulness. Um, the latter is a daunting challenge, uh, but the alternative returns us to fast cars and champagne, that is, to the good life being the ability to get whatever you want, uh, whatever you ha sorry, happen to want. I should say that in talking about meaningfulness, I don't propose to say anything about the meaning of life. I'm not entirely sure what the phrase means or what someone's looking for when they ask uh, for that. But it might be that reflecting on meaningfulness may shed some light on some aspect of what is going on when someone searches for the meaning of life. What I'm going to focus on instead is meaningfulness itself and ask what it is that makes things meaningful and, more to the point, what sorts of things can be meaningful and so make a life meaningful. And this leads me then to my second bold claim, um, which is a sort of distillation and drawing together and drawing from um, several different ancient sources. And the bold claim is this. Meaningfulness of the sort that gives a life meaning can only be had by directing our attention away from ourselves and towards something of genuine value. This is why ancient moralists, when you ask them about the good life, invariably change the subject and start talking about virtue or nature or God or love or beauty or any number of abstractions to which one can devote oneself and make sense of one's activity as connecting one to others and also to a project larger than any one of us. So here are a couple of examples from the northeastern Mediterranean. I've pared it down to just two examples. Aristotle starts his Nicomachean ethics with happiness and with the observation that it's agreed that that's what we all want. He then proceeds to talk about virtue for seven books, discusses friendship for two books, and then after a few obscure chapters on pleasure, which pick up on a few obscure chapters on pleasure that came earlier, he introduces God before segueing into the good of a well-ordered city and society. Or take Plato. In his Republic, he recognizes full well that most people suppose that the thing to aim for in life is to get as much as you want of whatever you want. The only constraint being the power that other people have to injure us when we do something they don't like. But his counterproposal is cast in terms of justice in the soul, what it does to a person to have it and to aim at it. And it's cast in terms of an absolute good that grounds the virtues. In one surprising and I think often overlooked passage, he even has Socrates tell us to stop aiming at happiness altogether. We must compel and persuade each to be the best possible craftsman at their own work. In this way, with the whole city developing and being governed well, we must leave it to nature to provide each group with its share of happiness. In each of these cases, and I could cite several more, um, the good life is to be reached by finding meaning in our particular activities, desires, and choices by setting them within a framework of valuing things that are of real value. Now, to say this much is not to be dictatorial about the good life. There may be a plurality of goods, the appreciation of which draws us out of ourselves. And there are manifold ways in which that appreciation can be manifested in a life. 
But it does not mean that just any end will serve or that every valuing of what is valuable will ensure a good life. People certainly seek and even find, or at least think they find meaning, in, something that is, or sorry, in things that are not genuinely good. We even know of forms of devotion to undisputed goods, such as love or justice, which disfigure and waste a human life, rather than making it meaningful and good. It is one of the hazards of being meaning-making creatures that we are liable to set up false idols in place of real goods, and we're reluctant to recognize the mistake. This account of the good life inspired by antiquity offers two related criteria for discriminating meaningful commitment to the good from its impostors. So first, does commitment to your chosen value or values, whether it be truth or family or love, beauty, virtue, friendship, art, justice, does it draw attention out of and away from the self? Or is it just an excuse to return to self-obsession? Second, does commitment to it assuage the human hunger for meaningfulness? False idols cannot assuage this hunger. False idols tend to demand sacrifice, endless sacrifice. Where the status of something is dubious, this status is asserted only through reiterated subjugation of others. Genuine goods, or sorry, genuinely valuable things, by contrast, do not assert and do not fight for status. Genuine goods rightly appreciated are illuminating. They cause us to see the world in their light and reveal the good in other things. Notice how often goodness is associated with metaphors of overflowingness and generosity. Now, overflowing generosity is perhaps the right place to introduce the great doubt that there are any such values or goods as the ancient moralists require. Capitalized beauty, love, or even truth are not fashionable items of devotion today when people are much more likely to have a healthy skepticism of such abstractions. Um, and this skepticism is indeed a healthy one. We tend to think of this as a peculiarly modern skepticism, the unhappy legacy of an unhappy 20th century. But in fact, wariness of universal absolutes was shared by another set of ancient moralists living southeast of Athens. When the Buddha declared that all is suffering, he was understood to have therewith done away with the self as a touchstone of moral endeavor, but also with God of any description, and so with any greater plan or purpose that a mere human life could fit into. Insistence on the fact of suffering was insistence on the vulnerability of all things, the lack of any overall guidance or control, the lack of any eternalities which could console us for the fleeting insignificance of our feelings, actions, and lives. Indeed, according to the Buddhist view, it is our very attempts to latch on to something as the source and foundation of meaning which cause additional and unnecessary suffering. The first noble truth, the truth of suffering, is to be accepted. Trying to fight against the endless, pointless, and essentially meaningless change in life involves us in a battle that cannot be won and merely exacerbates the suffering in countless ways. 
But this seems to put us in an uncomfortable position with respect to our bold hypothesis that the good life is the meaningful one and that meaning comes from directing attention away from the self and towards valuing what is genuinely valuable. For on, one, on the one hand, the Buddhist rejection of self is not so much an exercise in analytic metaphysics as it is a practice in redirection of attention away from the self as, the rele as relevant to practical thought and life. As with our Mediterranean friends, ask an ancient Buddhist about the good life and she will, will immediately change the subject. Indeed, it's noteworthy and in keeping with the skepticism Buddhism has about the consolations of teleology, that Buddhist moralists do not seem to discuss things in terms of the good life at all. On the other hand, in giving up the self as a primary object of concern, towards what should we direct our attention instead? Not God, nor God's surrogates like the unfolding of reason in history or rationality itself. Not art or love or even justice or any other abstraction through relation to which our particular partial and imperfect acts and desires might acquire meaning. There aren't any such things, according to the Buddhists. There is no impersonal project larger than oneself to which one could dedicate one's modest efforts. And there's no personal creative and guiding force either, which we could trust has the matter of the meaning of it all firmly in hand. Instead, the anti-teleological view of the Buddhists leaves us with nothing to attend to but the particular sufferings and joys of particular others. It strips away every other possible source of meaning and leaves us only with direct care and concern for others as an alternative to miserable self-absorption. If there is meaning to be had in life, and if it's not to be the false consolation of a false idol insatiably driving us onwards, if the good life is possible, it can be found only by orienting ourselves towards the well-being of others, of the countless other individual beings for whom it can go well or poorly. This is the only remaining candidate for something of real value. We do not, of course, consider suffering with a capital S, but the particular suffering before us and around us, and we consider all things, including our own mental states, ambitions, or projects, as they relate to causes of suffering and causes of the alleviation of suffering. This is the light in which our activities show up as meaningful and good, or else as empty and vain. Any wisdom or beauty that we seek is sought out of care for the world. Any love that is worthwhile is simply the, the will that it go well with others. This is what gives meaning and purpose to any search for wisdom, and anything else is a Faustian frivolity. When other-directed concern is the only orientation point left standing as a possible ground for the good life, it is important to remember that such concern is not a morbid obsession with what goes wrong, but includes the joyful appreciation of what goes well. The good life is also, as Aristotle saw, pleasant, or at least it has pleasures in it. Those pleasures taken in what is done for the good of others and in others' well-being are the meaningful pleasures which Plato attempts to single out in the Philebus, the pleasures that do not just feel good, but contribute to making sense of ourselves, our conditions, and our lives. Thank you.
but thank you for the invitation. Um, and my apologies in advance for, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling quite unwell. I've, I've got a sort of bug. So, um, yeah, my apologies for a rather lacklustre delivery um, sitting down. Um, so what, what does the phrase the good life conjure up in your minds? Um, well, I'm sure everyone differs um, on this, but to me, it immediately suggests a garden, perhaps somewhere in the Mediterranean, with fruit trees, vegetables, fountains, cool and shady places for reading and conversation, plenty of wine, maybe even some champagne, I'm not sure. Um, probably not fast cars. Um, okay, now, no doubt accidents of my own biography are at work here. Um, I, um, my parents had a friend who had you know, such an establishment um, on the island of Elba, and I spent many happy summers there when I was younger. So uh, I'm probably thinking of that. But I mean, this isn't just my own private fantasy. I think it's a, it's a you know, uh, commonly shared and very ancient ideal. Um, Cicero wrote, if you have a garden and a library, you have everything you need. Um, and let me quote a couple of uh, Renaissance writers um, who um, you know, shared this, 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 uh, this ideal. So uh, uh, Machiavelli um, uh, wrote a letter to his friend Francesco Vittori on the 13th of December, 1513. So the context for this is he'd, he'd recently fallen out of favour with the Medicis, the masters of Florence that had been dismissed from his post, uh, imprisoned and tortured. Um, and on his release, he retired to a small estate near Florence where he, he self-consciously lived out the Ciceronian ideal. Um, and in his letter he writes, when evening has come, this is a very famous letter by the way, you probably heard of it. Uh, when evening has come, I return home and go to my study. At the door I take off my peasant clothes, covered with dust and dirt, and put on my noble court dress. And thus suitably reclothed, I enter the ancient courts of the men of old, where, being lovingly received by them, I am fed with the food that is mine alone and which I was born for where I am not ashamed to speak with them and to ask them the reasons for their actions, and they in their kindness answer me. And for four hours I feel no weariness, I forget every trouble, I do not dread poverty, I am not frightened by death. I give myself over to them entirely. Okay. And it was during this period that he wrote The Prince, a famous book. Um, now, some 40 or 50 years later, another Renaissance gentleman, Michel de Montaigne, also occupied his leisure with farming and reading, okay, reading taking precedence, and the result was his famous book of essays, okay, one of which contains the following passage. At home I slip off to my library a little more often. It is easy for me to oversee the household from there. I am above my gateway and have a view of the garden, my chicken run, my backyard, and most parts of the house. There I can turn over the leaves of this book or that, a bit at a time without any order or design, Sometimes my mind wanders off. At others, I walk to and fro, noting down and dictating these whims of mine. Wretched the man, to my taste, who has nowhere in his house he can be by himself, pay court to himself in private and hide away. Ambition well rewards its courtiers by keeping them always on display, like statues in the marketplace. Magna servitus est magna fortuna. A great destiny is a great slavery. They cannot even find privacy in the toilet. So, 
as you can see, Machiavelli and Montaigne were both very self-consciously imitating the ancient Roman ideal of, of leisure or otium. Um, this ideal has three main elements. The first is the farm. The leisure gentleman should derive his livelihood from the land, not from politics, trade or manufacture. Now, this preference for farming doesn't stem from any romantic attachment to the soil um, of the sort you find later, um, but from the simple fact that farming grants a maximum degree of independence or self-sufficiency. Okay, another classical, key classical term. The farmer doesn't have to worry about the ups and downs of the market or the ins and outs of court politics. His livelihood is secure, meaning that his mind is free for higher things. And... We mustn't imagine Machiavelli or Montaigne getting much mud on their hands, okay, despite their talk of peasant clothes and chicken runs. Okay, they're both pretty wealthy men. Um, the second element in this ideal is retirement from politics or public life. Uh, this was enforced in the case of Machiavelli, voluntary in the case of Montaigne, but both contrived to turn it to their advantage. So from the standpoint of leisure, public life, appears uncertain, vain, and toilsome. Now, of course, public activity had many advocates too, including Machiavelli in other moments. Um, leisure is only one half of the classical ideal, um, but it's the more attractive half in my mind. Um, the third element is reading and contemplation. So both Machiavelli and Montaigne value their libraries as places where they can retire and converse with the, with the great minds of antiquity and with themselves. Okay, both emphasise solitude. Again, this is maybe a more Renaissance than a classical notion. Um, but the good life includes conversation with the living as well as the dead. It's intelligent and witty conversation. It's, it's a sociable, not an ascetic ideal. Now, interestingly enough, um, a very similar set of associations can be found in old China a civilization almost entirely independent of the West, which leads me to think that this might be a, a universal notion. Um, and I'll, I mean, I could quote countless sources. Um, it's, it's, it's a very uh, sort of cliched theme, almost. But here's one. This is uh, Shunfu, um, a failed scholar of the early 19th century um, who wrote a famous book, uh, well, famous in China, called Scenes from a Floating Life. Um, this is him reminiscing about happier times before his wife died. He said, we would spend the whole day doing nothing but criticising poetry and talking about painting. My friends were like swallows on the rafters, coming and going as they pleased. Yun, that, that's his wife, even sold their hairpins to buy wine without a second thought, because we did not want to give up lightly such a beautiful time and place. Four things were forbidden at the Villa of Serenity. Talking about official promotions, official business or the eight-legged official examination, and playing cards and dice. Offenders were fined four catties of wine. Four things were encouraged, generosity, romantic refinement, an unrestrained atmosphere, and peace and quiet. So, as you can see, there are quite a few similarities between European and Chinese conceptions of the good life. Both emphasise literary learning and the enjoyment of art and music, um, both reject, at least in some moods, the life of public service as something dreary and confining. Both espouse an ideal of dignified poverty, of being satisfied with what little one possesses rather than continually striving after riches or fame. Again, this poverty is only relative, of course. Um, okay, none of these authors was poor in an absolute sense, or they wouldn't have been able to pass their days in reading and conversation. 
Um, they were poor only in comparison with their more successful peers. Okay, and of course this raises a big question mark. Um, I mean, Cicero would have lived off the labour of slaves. Um, uh, Shunfu would have probably, you know, lived off quite a bit of bribery as a local government official. Um, so, um, yeah, we can discuss that. Um, does this ideal still resonate for us today? Uh, I think it does. So the appeal for me in the, in the idea of the good life lies in the way in which it, it avoids both a, um, a, a rigid moralism on the one hand um, and a crass materialism on the other. Um, so to lead a good life is, is to display certain virtues, right? Uh, virtues of generosity, conviviality, wit and others. Um, but these virtues can't flourish in a vacuum. Uh, they require a setting, both material and social. So you, you need the garden, the books, the friends. Um, okay, you, you, you can't live the good life on top of a column, um, like some Christian ascetics. Um, so the good life presents us then, I think, with a, a political as well as a personal task. Um, we need to create the material conditions, okay, which include wealth, but are no means limited to wealth, under which it's possible for us and, and everyone in our society to live wisely and agreeably and well, as John Maynard Keynes put it. Um, so I think that, that's, I mean, obviously, it's, it's, the good life is not a technical notion. It's an it's a everyday notion, so no doubt it, you know, it conjures up different things for different people. But I, that's what it suggests to me. Um, I did, uh, I must confess, I did think when Edward uh, said that the first image that uh, was conjured up for him by The Good Life was the garden, I, I got quite excited. I thought he was going to talk about Felicity Kendall. <laughs> I, I can hear the deafening silence from everybody born before, say, 1985. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm also rather pleased by the irony of being the only person using PowerPoint, being the last dinosaur at, at my own institution who refuses to use it. So. <laughs> um, so all the thinkers that I've ever been drawn to, I think have been suspicious of trying to define, certainly to represent the good life, as though the good life is actually what eludes any attempt to know it or to fix it in place. For Freud, and for most versions of psychoanalysis, this elusiveness of the good or the fully satisfying life actually defines the human condition. There are many revisions, of course, within the corpus of Freud's own work, and many revisions and returns within the post-Freudian history of psychoanalysis. But there is, I think, an insistent thread running through all these revisions and returns, and that is the sense of the human being as, first of all, a conflicted being. In psychoanalysis, the self is characterized by a kind of failure to coincide with itself, to enter into harmony with itself, by its division between incompatible drives and desires, which pull and push in different directions. Now, in all of Freud, and particularly we could say the early Freud, uh, 
this constitutive predicament of being alive is a consequence of being sexed beings, of being subjected to desires, sexual desires, which are always threatening to undo us, um, and the impossibility of ever fully gratifying those desires. So Freud writes in his essay on the universal tendency to debasement in the sphere of love, that there is something in the nature of the sexual drive itself that is unfavorable to the realization of complete satisfaction. And of course, when Freud says that there's something in the nature of the sexual drive, he's essentially saying there's something in the human constitution itself that resists complete satisfaction. So there is something gently startling here, I think, that the very force in us which seeks, that goes after satisfaction, is also what foils it. And this continues to be the essential predicament when Freud introduces another notion um, into the second half of his corpus and second half of his, of his work, which is the idea of an element in us opposing the life-loving expansiveness of the erotic drive, the sense that what we're here to do is fill the world with ourselves. That there is, he thinks he's discovered in his 1920 book, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he thinks he's discovered an older pull, a pull that is older than the drive to life, which he calls the drive to death. A pull to the original quiescence, the nothingness from which life originally emerged. Following Barbara Lowe, Freud used the phrase Nirvana Principle to describe this tendency towards a wholesale extrication from the sticky entanglements of life and love. Now, in my very limited and modest acquaintance with Buddhist thinking and writing, there is a certain aliveness to this essential paradox um, of thinking of a radically detached state as a life aim. And I think this paradox is beautifully captured in, in a brief memoir by the Japanese Buddhist monk, Kamano Chome, um, called Hojoki, um, in which Chome tells of a little mobile hut that he builds himself and he settles on Mount Hino. And it is a refuge from the natural and the human worlds that have plagued him um, through the course of his life hitherto. Living in the city, he uh, has witnessed the bedevilment of ordinary lives by various apocalyptic phenomena, fires, floods, whirlwinds, earthquakes, as well as the petty caprices of the ruling class. Well, all this serves to show Chimay the vanity of the desires attaching us to worldly existence. In the hard-won piece of his hut, he would retreat into the quiet joys of gardening, of music, of walking, and of taking in the sublimities of the surrounding mountain landscape. But having sung the pleasures of this little mountain idyll, Chimay closes the memoir with a very stinging self-reproach. 
He says the Buddha's essential teaching is to relinquish all attachment. This fondness for my hut, I now see must be an error, and my attachment to a life of seclusion and peace is an impediment to my rebirth. How could I waste my days like this, describing useless pleasures? There is a bitterly comic irony here that somehow is very congenial to my sense of humour. That you withdraw from all attachments only to become attached to your withdrawal. That you seek non-desire and then you get caught in the state snares of desire. So does this mean then that we are, we are condemned really to this self-cancelling paradox, to this hellish oscillation between different states, achieving only different modes of the same failures of satisfaction? Well, not necessarily. What it means, I think, is that we have to renounce the good life as a kind of realised utopia, as a state that which, we, which we could definitively attain one that could be made substantial. Beyond the self-counselling paradise in which Chomé gets caught, can we imagine a more productive paradox in which the good life consists precisely in the renunciation of any claim to its definitive attainment? I find here the distinction drawn by the American-born British psychoanalyst Christopher Bolas, very helpful here. A distinction between the fateful life and the destined life. G uh, develops in his book Forces of Destiny. The fateful life is a life lived in compliance with an agenda that one has unconsciously internalized by another. So it is a rigid, unwitting imitation of the life someone else wants you to lead parents, and then various iterations, the school, the workplace, the church, any community you can think of, or at least it's what we might imagine they think we should lead. Now, to live in accordance with destiny, um, and, sorry, yeah, um, is to have the psychic capacity for play that renders the uncertainty of, of where we're going, of how to live, of what to do, a mode of creative living. So Burles writes, one of the tasks of an analysis is to enable the analyzon to come into contact with his destiny. The analytic process becomes a procedure for the establishment and elaboration of one's idiom. Now, I can say more about this afterwards. Um, but it is really, put very simply, the task of realising oneself out of, and I think this speaks to what um, Amber was saying earlier about um, the, the lives of particular selves and particular others in a new universe that has been stripped of any pre-established agenda or program for achieving the good life. Um, now, when I 
speak of how to live and what to do, I'm alluding to a favourite short poem of mine, Wallace Stevens' poem of that title. So I'm going to finish by reading it and offering a few brief glosses, remarks, um, and then we can turn to discussion. But um, this is how the poem reads then. How to live, what to do. Last evening, the moon rose above this rock, impure upon a world unpurged. The man and his companion stopped to rest before the heroic height. Coldly the wind fell upon them in many majesties of sound. They that had left the flame-freaked sun to seek a sun of fuller fire. Instead there was this tufted rock, massively rising high and bare beyond all the trees, the ridges thrown like giant arms among the clouds. There was neither voice, nor crested image, no chorister, nor priest. There was only the great height of the rock, and the two of them standing still to rest. There was the cold wind, and the sound it made, away from the muck of the land that they had left. Heroic sound, joyous and jubilant, and sure. Sorry. I'll give it to you to read. I didn't uh, move the slides. So, how to live, what to do, what kind of a response is this to the rubric that Stephen sets himself? Well, the man and his companion withdraw from the muck of the land. They withdraw from the overabundant drama, the saturated content of the land that they've left behind. A kind of psychic territory, a social territory, a territory in which there is so much going on that life, in a sense, becomes over-familiar. One has to play a role in an established script. They leave this land behind to enter what one might call a kind of nirvanic zone without content. Now, is this how to live? Not if we think of this as an agenda or a design for living. But it points to a way out of the script, the choral soundtrack, um, the sense of life taking place in this rather kind of grandiose structure which then legislates what it's then going to be. It points to a way of extricating ourselves from the fateful good life that others might have made for us and risking the destiny which we can only attune ourselves to when we unburden ourselves of the world and the self that we already know. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much to our three speakers. Um, I just want to open the discussion with a couple of kind of questions that hopefully bring together some of the different things you've been saying. So one of the things that struck me, um, at least when Amber and Edward were talking, um, was the importance of the idea of virtue. 
So the idea that maybe the good life is the exhibition of certain human virtues within a certain setting. And then I was struck by the complete absence of any idea of virtue um, in your talk, Josh. And I was thinking about the connection between the idea of moral goodness and goodness as some kind of satisfaction or fulfilment. Mm. Um, and that connection seems to be very clear in, in what you were both saying, um, but seemed to be kind of broken um, by the idea that psychoanalysis gives us of the impossibility of satisfaction. Um, and I'm wondering whether this means that there is a kind of modernity perhaps brings this disjunction and it's something that we need to come to terms with or does it change the very concept of the good life that we're working with? <laughs> I didn't notice so much virtue in your talk, Edward. Do you um, see a lot of virtue there? Well, I do mention it towards the end. Um, mm. No, I, no, I think I think I think um, the virtues are essential to to any any sensible notion of the good life. Um, I mean, clearly, the good life can't consist simply in sort of stuff you know, or circumstances. It, it has to be something we live, right? So it has to consist in 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 action. Um, I mean, life is essentially action, human life. Um, but I, I suppose what I like about the idea of the good life is that it implies more than just you know action. It implies a, a, a setting. Uh, a surrounding, um, you know, within which virtuous action can take place and, and flourish. Um, so it's, it has both an inward and an outward dimension. Um, that's, that's what I find attractive about the idea. But no, suddenly virtue is central. Um, not morality, I would distinguish those two. How? Well, I think virtue is a broader notion. Um, so, I mean, a virtue would be any, any quality of character that, um, you know, conduces to living well. Um, so, you know, wit is, is, is a virtue for Aristotle, um, you know, uh, but it's, it's not exactly what we'd call a, a moral virtue. Um, so so I, I prefer that broader notion. Um, I suppose I would want to make two links to the possibility of virtue. Um, one is that if one takes the distinction between destiny and fate as a psychic task, that destiny would be a psychic task, then I think one gets a sense of a certain psychoanalysis as, as an essentially kind of post-Kantian enterprise, because it makes it imperative to assume one's own autonomy. In other words, you can't live the virtuous life that somebody has legislated for you, or indeed that you've unconsciously internalised the life that you have been told or have breathed osmotically as the good life. Um, so virtue involves a process of discovery. And I, I mean, I suppose it's, you know, the, the other link is, is really the same point in a different register, which is that um, uh, Stevens writes this elusive gnomic description which you know, for, for um, uh, the Wordsworth buffs among you, you, you will probably recognise this scene from actually at least two moments at the beginning and at the end of, um, of the prelude um, but he, he calls it 
how to live, what to do. Um, and I think that he both in that moment wants to make a disjunction between um, between what it means to think about how to live well because Stephen says um, in his Adagio that, that the task of poetry is to show us how to live um, so he I think wants to make a kind of disjunction between um, between that kind of task and legislation um, and at the same time a kind of a kind of conjunction because with this poem we're asked to think well what how, how do you actually carve out that passage from this moment to the question of how to live and so you know actually the collocation of the title and the poem itself are a kind of questioning uh, an asking of the question I mean they put a question marker if you like in front of the two phrases of the title can I pick up on this notion that it's post-Kantian? Mm -hmm. um, it's also deeply Socratic. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, it is precisely about the, re the requirement, the moral requirement, to be involved in one's own thoughts, beliefs, commitments, whatever they are. And also in its open-endedness. Mm. And this is how mm. it's similar to the Socratic project but also similar to the Buddhist project as you picked up in your talk mm. that it's the renunciation of any definitive answers and, and the sense of irony as well yes, yes. I was also thinking well, when you mentioned at first this idea of a, a life of champagne and fast cars and you were saying definitively that that is not what we understand by the good life I was thinking, if that is not what we understand by the good life, and that's almost a given, then why do so many people pursue this life? Very good question. Excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't be so dismissive. I, 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 I think, um, I, I think um, you know, if you, if you ask what people are looking for in champagne and fast cars, I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's partly pleasure, which is, you know, is a good, I mean, it's a genuine good. Um, it's also respect, um, uh, you know. Insofar as those things win you respect, okay, I mean that's that's debatable. But I think, um, yeah, I think I think money and connect, uh, money and respect are, are bound up, you know, to an extent in our society. Uh, certainly, achievement and respect and money is often an index of achievement. So I don't think, you know, I. I um, I think I, I, yeah. kind of explanations. Yeah. Uh, I just think that they all yeah. boil down to people being just deeply misguided. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, I mean, I, I'd like more money. I mean, I, you know, I'd like to go to the opera more often. I, I can't on an academic salary. Um, so, <laughs> um, so you know, and that's a, that's a genuine sort of you know um, lack. I mean, that's something that's missing from my life that um, prevents it from being fully good. Your so, understanding of the good life, mm. the, even of the virtues associated with it, are very aesthetic, yeah. right? So Montaigne mm. and, and Machiavelli could be self-absorbed, callous, cruel, foolish, um, and none of that's mm. going to disturb the enjoyment of reading bits of wisdom from Cicero and a little bit uh, of Herodotus yeah. the next yeah. day and, 
you know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I agree. And they'll be cultured in that sense, and that um, might be a virtue of the sort. I, I think I think it does have an aesthetic. I mean, to, in my mind, I, I, I mean, those are the connotations of the phrase to me. Mm. Um, uh, you know, which is why well, I think it, you know, it's useful to distinguish the good life from you know, the the moral life, or you know, the, the um, or even the autonomous life. I think um, um, it's a it's a broad, it's a more capacious notion. Um, Can I mm. take you up on that because it struck me about leisure mm. that um, Aristotle for instance, specifically says that leisure is for the sake of being able to engage in politics, not a withdrawal. No, no, he, no, he do, no, he doesn't. He, um, leisure is not for amusement. Yeah, the things yeah. that you have to amuse yourself so that you can then engage in meaningful but, activity. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's, that's amusement, but amusement and leisure are different concepts for him. I mean, there's... I mean, yes, I mean, that's, I, that's yeah. what I'm saying. But le leisure is, 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 is not uh, for the sake of... what Machiavelli and what uh, Montaigne yeah. are doing is, on Arist by Aristotle's yeah. lights, amusement. Because well. it's not for the sake of the fine, um, and it's not in particular for the sake of the greatest good, which is organising social life and political yeah. life, yeah. so yeah. that we can all... True, I, I, I agree. I mean, that's certainly true of Montaigne. Right. Um, but, I mean, it, I think it's, I mean, he was pursuing something. I mean, he wasn't just sort of, you know, having a good time. He was, he was uh, you know, pursuing his own thoughts. He was exploring himself, exploring the inner, you know, the inner life in a, in a way that no one had done before. So, and and um, in so doing, also, offered the world a very generous gift. Actually. Yeah. Um, mm. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, I mean, the, the external sort of stability of his life was, was a, simply a, a kind of framework for, for this, you know, relentless self-exploration. Um, it was a kind of stable backdrop that he needed so as to be able to, you know... Um, that no one had ever done before, not Augustine? Not quite in the same way. Um, uh, I mean, without any sort of, you know, dogmatic agenda. Um, uh, I think he was, he was, he was a original in that sense. Um, Should we take some questions? <laughs> so if you could wait for the mic to come to you before you uh, start speaking for the sake of the podcast, if you could try and keep your question short, and um, ideally it will be a question rather than a comment. I think the lady over there had her hand up first. Um, I wanted to know, how much is the good life for the individual tied into the good life for society as a whole? So can you lead a good life if most people are sort of not able to. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I'm not sure that you can, actually. Um, I do think that, uh, that, that, you know, I, I, I really want to avoid... The, uh, the easy running together of uh, psychoanalysis with a kind of hermetic, um, uh, self-centered narcissism. Um, I think that the whole process of self-questioning and self-discovery um, is a way of writing yourself out of a script in, in which the values by which you live 
and by which you treat others are already known. Now, a lot of bad morality, a lot of bad politics comes from um, a kind of unquestioned orientation to oneself and to the world. And so if there is a kind of ethics of psychoanalysis, it must have something to do with the capacity to open up everything, all the kind of notions by which you've sort of narrowly breezed through life, um, to, to, to put those in question. And um, uh, I, I can't see that project if one understands it, if you like, in a kind of more expansive way outside the consulting room as being compatible with uh, living in a kind of unthinkingly selfish way. It's a good question. I, I think you know, the, the good life you know, for the individual and you know, the good society are, are connected to, to, to an extent. Um, so it would be hard to lead a good life in you know, Stalin's Russia, say, um, you know, in, in, a, in a society where, where no one trusts you know, mm. even their closest friends. So that, that's almost unthinkable. But you, you could have lived, well, people did live a good life in Tsarist Russia, right? um, which um, yeah, it was a you know, fairly stable society um, and you know, where the aristocracy at least enjoyed quite a bit of leisure and... Um, wealth, um, you know, but, a, but a, you know, an extremely unequal society and an unjust society. So, um, and of course, you know, Russian intellectuals, you know, were tormented by this, by the thought that, you know, that, 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 that you know, their own, you know, self-perfection rested on the exploitation of serf labour. Um, so I, I don't think they're completely harmonious. Um, I'd like to follow up on that question a bit. Um, in terms of this notion of the social versus the private individual, it still seems that the orientation is one of can an individual have a self-fulfilled life without other individuals being um, also able to, to do the same. Um, and it still seems to be defining everything in terms of the individual rather than the sense of a collective self. Um, and, and so what I've noticed in all of the talks is there's a little bit of a problem um, in terms of the self versus society. So for instance, this notion that I find my internal self as if I have an internal self that is not a societal construct. You know, or, or the notion of, is it possible to um, withdraw from society in, in such a way that, um, and still have a happy life? Or even the Buddhist idea of helping others. It's still ego of one person helping another. It's not a collective working together. It's sort of a, yes, I will bestow happiness and relieve the suffering of you. And so I was wondering, is there any room for a less individualistic sense of the good life other than as a collective is a way of happy, helping the individuals in the collective lead a good life. Um, I'll go ahead and start. Um, so it's, it's an important part of the Buddhist outlook that it's precisely not, I shall bestow this on you. Uh, the first move is the deconstruction of self-centered thinking and self-oriented thinking. And at looking at the world um, as if there's some I here that's going to be affirmed through action. This is really what the importance of no-self is, right? We think that 
somehow I, we sort of um, affirm and bolster and provide for some self through our actions, and that drives us to make really stupid choices. So the first thing you have to do is to get over that. Now, when you get over that, or the process of getting over that, this is my suggestion, is a process of shifting the attention. Right? It, it could be a metaphysical claim about there being no self, if that's what helps. But the point is to shift the attention to the suffering and to its being alleviated. And insofar as one then thinks about the self, or what's going on here with me right now, that will be for the sake of alleviating suffering, not for the sake of me alleviating suffering. And this um, relates a little bit to what um, Josh was talking about before, that, that self-knowledge and some kind of self-reflectivity may well be a moral requirement on us, but it will be because it will be done for the sake of others. It will be because that's what's necessary to alleviate suffering. Um, so that's, I think, how the Buddhist is going to um, not really recognize this um, uh, conflict between individual and society, and in fact think that when you've got that far down the road, you've already taken a wrong turn. Um, I'll, I'll just come quickly back, just because I'm wary of a notion of a collective self or a society self or the inner self as a social construct. Um, uh, I think that the inner self is a very complex, sophisticated edifice that is made up of very kind of um, inextricable intermingling of constitutional environmental aspects that actually can't be pulled apart and can't be assimilated to either one or the other. I also think that um, if the self is merely an epiphenomenon or um, uh, a kind of um, yeah an epiphenomenon of the collective, um, we're almost doing away with um, with morality as uh, or, or yeah with morality as process with politics as process because what then legislates the good if if it doesn't come out of a kind, the, the kinds of questioning, the kinds of reflection that only selves can do. Hi. I, among my favorite lines of poetry are Walt Whitman's I Think I Could Stand a While with the Animals because they don't engage in this and they don't you know think about someone of their kind who lived thousands of years ago and they don't do this sort of thing hmm. comment please <laughs> that's our fate isn't it i mean yeah. you know we we have language we have reason i mean i, I agree mm. it's, it would be it's I mean, an appealing thought but I, because we can't, that, we can't, we can't you know, unburden ourselves of but my, another favorite poem of mine is Wendell Berry's The Peace of Wild Things. You know, when I despair of what the world is, you know, for me and for my children, I go and lie out where the, you know, the wood drake lies in his peace on the water and I'm free. Um, I keep, for myself, I keep asking, what the hell am I doing in London? <laughs> you know? But for, for me, with, with my <laughs> value system. But because um, 
I, I came here from the Rocky Mountains. But what and the hell I've, are you doing in uh, London? Yes. <laughs> 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 but it, it's I've I've been here for eleven years. But it it um, why are is it how essential is it? You know, in the peace of wild things, and in, in you know, with the wind blowing, with the you know, all of these things, and and I mean, are are that we keep questioning all of this? We do because we are, and because we are sentient beings. And because, but how essential it, you know, I mean, it's just. Oh, I, 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 you know, as a starting point, I can't disagree with Edward. It is our, um, our predicament to be thrown into minds and bodies that want and think and carry a sense of a past and, and uh, a burden of a past and a sense of a future um, that, that, that hopes and regrets and anticipates. Um, but I think one of the implications of something like a Nirvana principle is that there is a kind of fearful fascination for what, what Nietzsche called you know, the, the, the bovine state of, I mean, he begins his wonderful essay on history by talking about the cow who lives from moment to moment without a thought for what's past and for a thought uh, of what's coming, and he says, you know, if he could bother, if he could be bothered, he would tell you about. She would tell you about this. Um, uh, and I think that there is a kind of fascinated pull in us for this state of um, of animal indifference, um, quiescence. Um, I mean, it's 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 difficult. It's, you don't think it's indifferent? I, I don't think animals are the least bit indifferent. No, no, no. Um, but but they are they are indifferent to human. That they, they are indifferent to the kinds of concerns, the kinds of um, uh, anxieties that that fill the human soul. I think. I don't. I you don't. They, they feel fear. They feel concern. They feel care for their for their offspring and for their offspring's well-being. Mm. You know, they, they feel the same fears that if, you know, if there's a predator coming, they can feel the storm coming, they can feel, you know, they, they... Yes. You know, and I think we cut ourselves off... By reflecting from, on... From them. Yes. But, um... And... But they don't debate yeah. the good life. Thank you for a very interesting talk from all of you. Um, I think I have the answer, which is clearly the good life is uh, you have to have a really miserable childhood, uh, and then everything after that is cakewalk. Um, no, <laughs> I'm not speaking from personal experience, maybe. Uh, the question I want to put to you is, you know, Moliere says happiness writes white. So you've talked a lot about the good life, and we all think about the good life as something in the future, but I'm, I'm wondering if maybe we're putting the cart before the horse, um, if there really is a good life to be sought, um, more that there's good moments and bad moments, and that the way to achieve those, I should ask a question of this, I'm getting to the question, um, uh, is not necessarily through the communal effort and loss of self, because that can also lead to fascism. There's nothing like the, uh, the, the joy with losing one's identity in the mob. Um, and it's not necessarily with the, the material aspect um, that Edward pointed out. 
but it's closer to, I think, what Josh was saying, which is deciding on a set of rules that allow us to live in accord with ourselves and also to live in society in a right way. And I'll, I'll end with, and this is the question I want to propose to you, which is what I said to my students at the end of their year-long seminar, because um, I felt obliged to share not just my limited expertise, but some life lessons for they went out and they all wanted to make money and be happy. So what do you think of this prospect? That in that trying to live right in each moment, three principles, sacrifice, respect for others, and love. You can't do it without wisdom. Um, in, in so many ways, the sacrifice and the love um, pave the road to disaster and misery for all of us without wisdom. And a lot of the wisdom has to do with um, self-knowledge. Um, and that self-knowledge um, will take something of the form of recognizing and accepting the incompleteness and indeterminacy and the lack of control. Um, this is, yeah, I'll start. Um, LSE is a school of social science. Does the panel um, see a link between the good life and social class? <laughs> I, I think it's probably easier to lead a good life if you're Rich, um, <laughs> um, I mean you, and I mean rich relatively rather than absolutely um, rich, you know, relative to other people in your society, as you have more access to, you know, what, what economists call positional goods, uh, you know, goods that, you know, uh, you know, of which there's a, an absolutely fixed sum, so that if you know, person A has them, person B can't have them. You know, nice country houses, you know, beautiful. Gardens, those sorts of things. You know, not everyone can possess these things. So not uh, everybody can have the good life. Well, not not if the good life includes these things. Yeah. Um. There's something instructive here um, about actually the the absolutely rich. Um, the, the American, well, German-born psychoanalyst Kurt Eisler wrote an article in which he argued that it wasn't possible to analyze somebody who is very very wealthy. Why? Because um, the predicament with which he comes to you, which is that he doesn't quite know what to do and how he wants to be, can never be decided because money cancels all, it kind of, kind of flattens all the options and cancels out their differences. So um, money kind of drains all life choices of a stake. And I, I, I think, I mean, it would be interesting to hear what Edward has to say about that because it is one of the possible pitfalls of the, the leisured life that it, that it becomes drained of not meaning but the possibility of meaning because um, the attempt well, I suppose I'm asking is there a link between meaning and necessity yeah 
Well, certainly, I mean, it's drained of economic necessity. So if, if you, you know, find the meaning of life in sort of working for a living and you know, struggling and progressing in your career, then yes, there is that danger. And, you know, a lot of you know, trust fund kids sort of do sort of yeah. find their lives empty. Um, but I, I think that's, that's largely a problem with our kind of civilization that we, we, we you know, we, we identify all meaning with economic meaning. And, I mean, I don't think Montaigne sort of found difficulty finding meaning, or we, I mean, he had to create the meaning for himself in intellectual pursuits. Um, um, uh, uh, I think... Um, uh, but there has to be something in you that, that wants that, that is pulled towards yeah. that, that particular use of, of, your, of yeah. the freedom that wealth brings you. It confronts you with an sort of existential challenge. Well, mm. um, I mean, you, you know, you can't, um, you know, you can't rely on the sort of the meanings that, um, you know, society hands us ready-made. You know, mm. successful career and so forth. So you have to create that meaning yourself, which, mm. you know, many rich people fail to do. But but it it offers that opportunity. Um, so the answer is, being wealth is a part of positive impediment to living the good life. I mean, I think Eisler, Eisler gets close to saying that because the un, the unanalyzable un, person is, in a way, somebody who can't lead, a, who can't imagine a good life for himself. Because if all options are equal, then what would it possibly mean mm. to live a good life? I'm a little curious. Uh, each each of you are involved at, <coughs> attached to a university, and I'm wondering what. Uh, what the role a university or education in general plays in um, helping people to uh, reflect and come to some kind of conclusion as to um, searching for the good life or, or, or and the career choice, career and relationship choices, um, and it just seems to me at the moment, from what I speaking to people of who have re, who are at university or who have left, recently left in their twenties. Um, and watching things on YouTube, that there's a real, you know, careerism is is really take is really the focus on people's leaving university. And it really, if you're in the humanities, it's one of the counselors refers to it as her fretting chair because people come in and they're just a nervous wreck. You know, what am I going to do? And you know, you know, in two months when I graduate. But um, is there is there something which which can be done to, I mean, Steve Jobs in that legendary commencement spoke, Stanford commencement address said, you can't join up the dots until the end. In other words, you, don't, you won't know if you, you've lived a good life as opposed to happiness. Perhaps you can, happiness you can, you can, you can feel at the time. So if you, if you could just mention, uh, talk about um, if there's more that can be done for people at a young, at a young uh, earlier point in their age to be, to think about this thing, this topic. So, I think education is um, incredibly helpful in um, aiding people, <coughs> assisting them in living a good life, um, because education provides the space for opening up 
all kinds of possibilities, not knowing where it's going to end or if there is a bottom to the, to the search. I think what education has to do with universities today is the question that's harder to answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just following on from that, um, even when we are trying to engage our students in the project of opening up their curiosity and their critical independence of thought, we're increasingly doing it in a, in a climate that instrumentalizes the learning and that in a way subverts the very message and the very process of thought that we're trying to, to nourish um, because it concentrates on, on, on identifiable outcomes, on, on transferable skills, um, and, and really pulls the student away from the pleasure and self-defining purpose of learning itself. Um, so, in a way, all we can do, I think, is to carry on doing what, what we're doing, but also, I, I think that this careerism has something to do with, with economic necessity, but, but, but not at a sort of casual level. At, at, at a deep level, I wonder what it's doing to the consciousness of a society to actually demonize otium to the degree that we have. This, this language which was so prevalent in the election campaign ju just now of freeloaders and scroungers, um, uh, it's, it's not just an attack on a particular segment of society. It's an attack on a particular region of the self that actually needs that. And um, I think that, that putting that under assault goes hand in hand with, um, with, with railroading people into a life that is kind of blindly productive and active. Yeah, I'd, I'd second that. I think, um, I think the modern university is, is not hospitable to the good life. Uh, and, 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 you know, largely for the, the reasons Josh has mentioned that, um, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we do so value you know, productive activity. Um, and therefore, a lot of academics, I think, have a, have a bad conscience. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not just external, it's also internal pressure. They feel they need to sort of justify their incomes by you know, churning out endless articles, you know. Mm. Um, uh, and, um, you know, they, they can't defend what they do as a form of, of otium, of yeah. leisure, um, yeah. which is what it is, really. Absolutely. And so they can't teach that to their students either. Mm. Right, yeah. right. Um, humans, uh, well, all life has evolved over millions and millions and millions of years, and we haven't always been these amazingly intellectual beings, and we haven't always had these same desires. And that, that again, as I said, takes millions of years. So for, for these things that we call virtues, for these things that we say make up the good life, uh, at what stage in our evolution of the, all these accumulations of tiny, tiny micro changes, at what point do those things become good? And secondly, um, if the universe itself, like as far as we're concerned, most of it is not sentient stars, planets, galaxies, then, um, then really is there any such good? Is it, is it purely an internalized concept? Because one day the Earth will be destroyed and perhaps even the whole universe itself. So uh, that whole concept of good is destroyed with it, is it not? Good 
be yours, I'm not sure. Sure, I can take this one. Um, um, do we need to know this? Right? Um, we know that we're here right now and that these are, this is our condition. Um, and as far as we've had continuous memory to draw on of human experience um, in the form of writing or of oral um, compositions, uh, these essential, I don't want to say essential, but these aspects of our human condition and our desires and our perspectives um, have not substantially changed. And we don't have any reason to think they're going to change in the immediate future. So this is the situation we're in and the one we have to deal with. And I think the fact that the universe doesn't care about the good um, is irrelevant to the fact that right here, right now, there is this suffering that can be alleviated. And that's what we should be looking at. Yes, that's true. Well, it wasn't us, was it? <laughs> but I, I, I agree. There is a, there is a, an irony here. Um, uh, I mean, look, you know, activities like um, writing, architecture, gardening—they they all express a longing for, you know, for permanence. You know, to, to you know, um, yeah, a passionate protest against the fact of death. Uh, Ernst Cassera called it, which is, uh, of course, you know, um, um, futile ultimately because you know, we will die and all our works will will perish, and um, so so we. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean that, yeah, occasionally, and you know, when I'm sort of halfway between, you know. Wake and sleep, I ponder these things. I don't dwell on them too much. Maybe that's just because I'm shallow. But, <laughs> um, but yeah. Um. I want to take the, the case of a great poet or a great philosopher or a great um, scientist and suggest that all three of you might have problems with this case. That in Amber Carpenter's presentation, um, is it credible that a great artist, a great scientist, does what they do primarily out of a concern for social welfare. Can one actually imagine such a person? In um, Edward Skidelsky's case, I'm wondering if the life you're describing isn't too damn comfortable for really uh, significant art, science, philosophy to come out of it. Um, Cicero's, by the way, was a very uncomfortable life. He was uh, executed rather quickly after, or murdered rather quickly after his description of the garden. And um, in Josh Cohen's case, whether the kind of skeptical knowingness that in a way he's talking about in renounce, renouncing any conclusive account of the good might not cut away from the rather deep commitments needed for um, the great philosopher, the great poet, whether there's a reason why Rilke refused analysis. Is it in that order? <laughs> um, so, the, your question was, is it, is it, is it you know, a plausible, like, is it even possible that, that, that that's a plausible psychological constitution? Um, so in the, in the case of the philosopher, I think there's absolutely no question. Um, so a lot of the Buddhist philosophers and a lot of other philosophers were doing what they did out of love for the world. Right? 
um, it was an attempt to um, participate in a project of making or creating conditions for life to be better. Now, I, I don't want to... Well, your question might have been specifically about the Buddhist... Um, no, about... Yeah, so, so I think there's certainly... Many, that's precisely what was moving many philosophers. Um, the artist, as I understand it, um, may very well be moved by love of the world. That may be a motivating, the motivating factor, or love of God in their activity, in their artistic pursuit. Um, historically, that's been a way of framing one's understanding of, of one's artistic endeavor. Um, the scientist... The, I mean, I believe there are scientists who do what they do out of passionate commitment to, and you put it as social welfare. I mean, a scientist is much more likely to be moved by what science can do in terms of improving social welfare. So I don't, I don't see the problem there, really. Um, that doesn't mean, of course, that um, all scientists, artists, philosophers uh, will be motivated by that. Um, and it, it might well be that certain particular views, like the Buddhist view, aren't especially conducive to certain ways, certain of these modes. Um, yeah, so I, I, I realised as I spoke that you know the, the ideal I was describing might come across as rather sort of you know, cosy and self-satisfied, but um, I, I, I didn't mean it in that way. Um, I mean, you know, yeah, all, all, all the figures I quoted actually led very um, you know, turbulent, unhappy lives in many ways, uh, but they were trying to carve out a sort of um, a space of you know, tranquility and reflection for themselves, you know, in the midst of you know war. Civil war, um, in Montaigne's case, um, religious conflict. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and you know, knowing that it you know, probably wouldn't last very long. Um, you know, so there's always that awareness of fragility in the background. Um, perhaps we've cut too much of a clear distinction between. Um, what I would say is a kind of non-pathological <coughs> narcissism, an interest in oneself and in one's own future, and and the possibilities of of, uh, of social welfare. Um, somebody asked me the other day uh, how, you know, what what one should say um, at a at an interview for psychoanalytic training, and I, I said, don't say you want to help people. <laughs> which, I think, which I think is, is, is uh, advice you're given for medical interviews as well. Um, now, why is this? Because actually, compassion, a kind of... It, it, I mean, Hannah Arendt uh, offered a kind of devastating critique of compassion as the basis for a politics because it intrudes the usually undigested, unreflected interests of the self into... Um, the interests of, of the whole. So um, I think that, in a way, there is something about the brutal narcissism, the hunger for self-exploration that you get particularly in the artist, but which can also be very ruthless in, in the scientist. Um, that 
that in a way opens onto the broader social good or the broader good of humanity, I'd probably prefer to say, in a way that is kind of more efficacious because it's less prone to the distortions of compassion than, um, than somebody who, who thinks that they're helping people. And that's, that, that's where they're coming from. Yeah, I'm just interested in kind of periods, say, like the Renaissance, that, um, you know, are there kind of little triggers that um, actually create kind of the need for sort of cultural and creative um, inspiration? What, what, what are the triggers? Well, it's, it's a very difficult question. I, I don't think I have any answers to it. I think, um, I mean, the growth of you know uh, town life in the Renaissance was very important, um, and you know, urban prosperity, um, you know, the, the the relaxing of religious dogma, um, you know, the 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 revival of you know secular modes of thought and self-expression. Um, um, uh, um, beyond that, I can't say. It's it's it's. Uh, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a very mysterious question. You know what what makes some periods yeah. you know, creatively great and. Mm. Um, it happens within the lives of the individuals. I mean, someone like Viktor Frankl, um, people who go through a life crisis, people who have undergone these um, uh, heart transplants, they come out the other end and they, their perspective on life has totally changed. So for the individual, it's ter something turbulent and catastrophic. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming. Um, I ask you to join me in thanking our speakers.